Welcome to Saturday Sips, the first episode of 2021. I'm Blake Barber, and this is the Critical Teacher Podcast. Listeners, I'm so glad to be back with you. This year has already brought so much. We continue to exist in a pandemic. We saw democracy survive and inaugurated new leadership in the United States. And now you're here listening to this podcast, thinking about questions such as how do we make schools more human? How can we think about schooling differently? And why is it that schools operate the way that they operate? Well, today we begin to have some answers with Dr. Derek Robinson as we discuss teacher evaluation and what effective teaching is. But before we jump into that episode, I wanted to talk a little bit about the new name change, the Critical Teacher Podcast. It's not really a new name. Rather, I just finally named my podcast. Having five-minute Fridays, which were just a series of five-minute episodes, and then Saturday Sips, which were 30-minute to 35-minute interviews, could have been really confusing to the listener. Uh, Those now are going to be just housed under the Critical Teacher Podcast. And the mission of the Critical Teacher Podcast is to encourage education enthusiasts to think reflectively and critically about schooling in the United States. With the new name change also comes a slight structure change on 5-Minute Fridays. I want to incorporate listener voice more. So each week there will be opportunity for listener questions as well as a segment called Teacher Stories. If you want to be featured in a guest on the podcast, stay till the end of this episode and there will be more information on how you can contribute. All right, today's episode, we answer the question of what is effective teaching. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to another Saturday Sips episode, the first of 2021. As a reminder, Saturday Sips is a once a month episode on the Critical Teacher Podcast, a podcast where I, a current doctoral student at the University of Memphis pursuing a degree in education policy, talk about an educated related topic each week. This once a month special is to platform how other people's lives intersect with education. And today I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Derek Robinson. He is a professor at the University of Memphis, and most importantly to me, he is my professor. Uh, Dr. Robinson, how are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to actually be on the podcast. I'm excited uh, to actually have this moment with you. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast and stepping outside of your role as a professor to me and now being a guest on this episode. What I love to start off doing to make our exchange a little bit more personable on this interview is I love to just ask what you are currently sipping on. I am currently sipping on a cappuccino, a K-cup store-bought cappuccino. Um, It's extremely hot, so I'm letting it cool for a little bit, but um, I enjoy that. And after that, I'm going to drink my water and kind of stay fluid for the day. But right now it is a K-cup cappuccino, not as heavy a coffee drinker, so... Cappuccinos are kind of like a hot chocolate advanced. Got it. The sophisticated hot chocolate. I like that. Well, I am currently just sipping on a cup of black coffee in my favorite coffee cup. Uh, It's my go-to until around five o'clock. And then if this interview would have all of a sudden happened after five o'clock, we might have been doing some (laughs) scotch or whiskey or something like that. But we're we're keeping it coffee right now. 
Well, the very first thing that I want to start off asking is uh, to give you the opportunity just to name yourself and give us some context for your work in education. Excellent. Thank you. Um, I generally start my classes off um, asking students to identify their identities, um, their most five salient identities that make them them. For me, um, I first identify as black. Um, I think that's pretty obvious, uh, but it's not something that I run from. It's a, actually an identity that I embrace and quite proud of. Uh, identify myself as black. Uh, second, as a man. Um, and that's not to disparage women or anything like that, but I do identify and acknowledge who I am. Next three are husband, father, and educator. Um, regrettably, sometimes they've kind of jockeyed for lead. Um, and many times I've been more of an educator than I was a good husband or father. And then there have been times where I've been a great husband and father to the detriment of my experience as an educator. But I, I juggle all of those. And there are some like really sharp intersections um, at points in my life to tell a story. So man, black man, husband, father, educator are my five salient identities. Thank you so much for that. The mention of being a dad, a husband, and an educator just resonate deeply with me. And in the midst of a pandemic, having to shove those three identities into 1,100 square feet of my house and try to differentiate at different times of the day which identity needs to come forth uh, has been a task. Now, with those identities in mind, tell me what does your work in education look like in Memphis right now? Great. Currently, I am an assistant professor of education, leadership, and policy studies at the University of Memphis. This is now my third year here. Uh, prior to that, I had two years as a professor of leadership and policy studies in the University of South Dakota. Um, so I've had well, going to my fifth year in uh, higher education. I've loved every single year, loved what I've done. This is perhaps the profession that I've always wanted to be in. I can't really visualize doing something else. Uh, so I'm thrilled that I have this opportunity to actually work with students and particularly working with graduate students and students who are pursuing their doctorate to help get them through that process, but also helping them charter a educational journey that they've never experienced before. Uh, most of the time, we're used to a program where once you finish courses, the next thing to do is graduate. But a doctorate is a little different. You have to do an extra hurdle. And that could take anywhere from six months to two or three years and sometimes never. You know, But making sure you complete that total journey and get through has been a great mission. And I think I've worked out a formula along with colleagues uh, to help students really get through and be proud of the work that they do. Um, I can personally vouch that it's been a great experience thus far. Um, I'm still very much a rookie after one semester, about ready to start semester two. Um, but I've recently just read two of your publications. Uh, one is entitled Typologies of Effectiveness, Characteristics of Effective Teachers in Urban Learning Environments. And then another paper that I read was Developing Scholar Identities, a Case Study of Black Males in an Early College High School. I really want to begin to hone in on first your typologies for effectiveness. In this last uh, week, I sat down with a teacher. They just got done with their evaluations um, in Shelby County Schools, and he was put on a professional action plan uh, because of various things that were out of his control, um, such as the outputs 
um, that people were specifically looking for in the midst of a pandemic. In this paper, you begin to talk a lot about how effective teaching needs to be evaluated from inputs rather than outputs. And so I'd love to just give you some space to talk about, one, the paper, and then hone in on this idea of effective teaching being about the inputs rather than the outputs. Great. Thank you. In times past, because we've become increasingly concerned with accountability and accountability measures, we've decided to define teacher quality and by default, teacher effectiveness. We've defined it by outcomes and most notably test scores because they're easy. Uh, we take a test score at the end of the year, a test at the end of the year, we get our scores back. And based on those scores, we tell individuals and schools that you are being effective. Well, there's a whole lot at play in between that. Uh, and there's a test to see if we would really be willing to test that measure. Um, but things at play are this. Who are you teaching? In what environment are you teaching? How is the organizational climate? What is the disposition and ideology of the building, of the teachers, of the students, of the community? Um, all of those come into play because if I'm teaching in a school where everyone was born on third base, test scores are easy. I've been in schools as a public school teacher where people bought homes in order for their children to go to this particular high school. At this particular high school, 84% of the students took at least three AP exams. The, the, the median household income was over a million dollars, and this was, was 2005. So all I had to do there was hand children the books and meet them on test days. They would pass regardless of my input, regardless of who I am as a person. But there are other schools where it's a little more challenging. And you have to repeatedly test your inputs. What are your, in, what are your dispositions as you look at students? And, and teacher education would also argue, particularly in this article, is that there are certain types of personalities that show up to an urban school. Some great some very detrimental. Um, and Gloria Lassen-Billings talks about this. Uh, Abbe Vaughn talks about this. But I want to take you back to the idea of the teacher and teacher preparation programs. Now, today, our, teacher our, our pre-service teachers are extremely knowledgeable about what's out there. And they're coming into uh, teacher preparation programs, and they want to go back and teach in a place that's just like the place that they went to school, where they have fond memories of. Um, and if we look at the demographics of pre-service teachers and in-service teachers, it's going to be about 80% white, 84% female. Now, that makes a difference because many want to go back and teach students who look like them, who have similar experiences to them, and who can blame them for that? So when teachers get ready to graduate and start going to the job fairs and things like that, they do their homework because we have this little thing called the internet. And every state publishes publicly how schools are doing and we have a national website that tells you, that gives a grade to every school in the nation. So they do their homework. They identify the schools that they would like to go to in, in work. And then they identify the schools that they would not like to go to. So the first thing is to try and go back home. Well, if you come from a rural or a kind of rural district, the chances of having job openings are going to be extremely slim. If you are at an outer ring suburban school, 
chances are not going to be a lot of positions available. They have very little turnover, turnover. And people in particularly positions like English are there forever. I'm a social studies teacher by trade. We teach social studies until the paper yellows or we die. <laughs> you know, so the possibility of having those positions are slim. But there is a city nearby that has tons of positions. So you do your homework. You go to that job fair with a list of the schools you want to interview with. But guess what? Everyone thought that. So for those two positions at that high-performing high school, the line is wrapped around the corner. So you go to your second choice, same line. Third choice, same line. Now you're frustrated. And you see down on the other end of the hallway a table with a school that you promised you would never go to, but you need to graduate and have a job. So now you go to that school that you never thought you would be at. And the reason why is because you did your homework. They contain kids you never thought you would teach. Partially because you may believe that these kids are incapable of learning. Now that sounds like a bad thing because we all say we believe children can learn. But if we're looking at data, then we obviously believe that some can't. If we put that school on the no teach list. So now you're teaching kids you never thought could learn. And if you don't believe students can learn, I can tell you another thing that I know you're not doing. You're not planning either. Because no wise person will put gas into a car they know cannot drive. So if you're not going to believe, if you believe that a student can't learn, you're not planning to teach them dynamic lessons. And I've worked with teachers in schools like that. And I've shown them creative ways to do some things. And they say this, that's great, but it'll never work for my kids. That says a lot, right? So it is important that we interrogate the dispositions of people before they enter into a classroom and are given the responsibility of leading and guiding minds. Now, if you're a principal and you're interviewing a person and they tell you, I don't like kids, I don't like African-American kids, I don't believe they can learn, and you are 95% African-American in your school, you would know, okay, fine, thank you, we're done. You know, but we rarely give our dispositions to anyone. We rarely share what our ideologies of the world are. So we have to figure out ways to interrogate an ideology and a disposition that you're not very willing or bold enough to share. So I, I propose that we figure out ways to work on the inputs, the characteristics, the dispositions, uh, the subtle uh, deficit language, the deficit thinking that pops up. Um, amongst teachers. Now, a little bit of cynicism is healthy. But when your dispositions are horrible towards the students you teach, you can't tell me that you're giving them your all. So that was the, the impetus of that paper and kind of the guiding thought that there's all types of teachers when you go into an urban school. Um, you have to figure out which ones have the positive um, dispositions and really work to develop and support those and those who do not you have to work on how to interrogate and how to work with those dispositions to get them to see things a little different. Uh, I don't propose that we go and fire everybody who has a negative disposition. We don't have the space and the resources to do that. But we can put some targeted professional developments in place to really work on that because that's interfering with the outputs that we're calling effective. But if a person can work on the inputs and begin to accomplish worthwhile goals. I would call that an effective teacher, even if 
the scores are not stellar. Um, and the only way we can fight, figure out that out, particularly with teacher effectiveness, is if we take the high-performing school and tell those teachers, you're going to the low-performing schools next year because you're doing great, you're effective. How many teachers would actually take that deal? <laughs> I've been in a school where they offered other school teachers $10,000 to teach at that particular school. No one took the deal. Well, and I think this is like, this highlights a really interesting point. Uh, and it reminds me, I was sitting in a book talk with Dr. Jack Snyder. He just wrote a book called A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door. And he started talking about schools as institutions that launder privilege. And we fail to really understand that as a society. So people come in with this inherent privilege to a school. They then graduate from that school and they make it seem like it's earned privilege. And as teachers and educators and administrators, I don't know if we're always aware that schools are that. And so as we begin to think about teaching practices, you have this really powerful quote in your Typologies of Effectiveness paper, which says, universal effective teaching makes all the missteps in the classroom automatically the fault of the learners who do not respond to the universal style of effective teaching. And so in that statement alone says, we can't have a universal way of teaching students. And so my question to you, when we think about universal teaching and it not being something that we, it's absolutely something we cannot consider when thinking about schools that are serving um, students that have been historically placed at the margins. So what are your alternatives? What are some criteria that we should begin to look at um, to measure the effectiveness of teachers who are not working at institutions or schools filled with privilege or schools that are laundering privilege? Great question. The first part of that is this, and the the purpose of that quote is to extend this idea that if you're going to have this idea of universal effective teaching or or universal effectiveness in teaching, Naturally, you're going to pair it with a universal curriculum and universal pedagogy. So what do we mean by universal effectiveness in teaching? What we simply mean is this. If we make test scores a universal measure across all schools in the nation, that having this particular score, advanced or proficient, makes you effective, then some entrepreneur is going to come up with a curriculum that they just know can yield that result. So now we'll have scripted curriculums, and that takes away from the art and talent of teaching. That takes away from the genuineness. You didn't go to school and absorb student loan debt so that you can come and read a script from somebody that says, do this, and after 10 minutes, stop, and then do this. Um, No one wants to be a cog in the wheel of that kind of organization. So what we do in universal teaching is we blame students for not meeting that measure because universal teaching is kind of averaging and is made to make this average, teach this average student. And if you read, I believe it's called the the book called The End of Average, it talks about the fact that there is no average, anything, you know. So we're teaching to the average. We're doing disservice to those who are moving above average and those who are moving below average. And if we start doing that at schools, 
we're going to do a disservice to all students, particularly those who are who could advance better. So the alternative to that is to localize the idea of effectiveness. Um, what does effectiveness mean back mean in this building? What does it mean when you talk to this community? What do you mean when you talk to this district? And not a universal idea of what effectiveness is. Our communities can tell us what they would see as success in my child. Uh, the local universities, things like that, could tell you this is the kind of learner we need. Uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, actually, if you do a word search and word study of the frequencies of adjectives, when they talk about the top careers, very little of them have to do with the actual career itself. It is team player. It is a flexibility. It is adaptability. It is ability to learn and innovate, you know, and think beyond the rules, things like that. We're, we're cherishing those as effective and as good. But when we come to schools, it's you have to get a this cutoff score. So what does that look like? Um, it looks like taking into account the, the capital that children bring to the table. And I'll give you an example. Um, the last public high school I taught at or worked as an administrator at, we were giving common assessments. So everyone would take the same, for example, English and math tests. Regardless of whether you were in an international baccalaureate program or you were in a general education program, you would take the same common assessment. And when I sat with PLCs to actually look at their data, I noticed that one young lady was beating Everybody almost. Uh, she was beating not only the general ed program, but she was beating most of the students in the IB program. And I said, well, what about this girl? And as soon as I said that, everyone told me about her behavior. It's like, oh, Miss Robinson, you know her. We've referred her to your office several times. And it gave me a name. Like, oh, yeah, I do know her. Yeah, she's, she's got a lot with her. Yeah. But I didn't realize that she was knocking it out of the park every time she tested. So I said, well, how about moving her to the IB program? Oh, no, that would never happen. Her behavior's horrible, blah, 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 blah. And I went to the IB coordinator and said, listen, for the last three common assessments, this young lady here is beating almost 80% of your IB students. How about this? Well, I've heard about her. She has a behavior problem. And because she didn't start the IB program in middle school, she couldn't come into, it, into high school. Well, that's not necessarily true. I was a former IB teacher. I even went to the parents. It was like, listen, your daughter is killing it here. You know, push for her to actually go higher. And they really didn't. So when you talk about, and, and oftentimes I deal with middle class black and middle class white parents. And I've noticed a distinct difference. And I've tried to talk to those parents who are friends of mine to get them to advocate better for their children. What I've noticed is this, middle-class black parent wants equality. They don't want any special favors. They want what's good for my child, it's good for everyone's child. I don't want to take from that particular family or child or program to benefit mine. What I noticed with middle-class white parents is that they're looking for advantage. They're looking for that one thing that can put their child over the top. And I understand it. You're responsible for that child. I can love my entire community, but I'm responsible for my child. I've had parents bring me a list of the teachers that they want for the next year. And they were insistent on getting it. 
I've had parents who disagreed with a particular teacher and then brought me alternate teachers to change the schedule for their child, regardless of the qualifications of that teacher that they wanted. They wanted the advantage. Our IB program was 20% of our school. Our most vocal parents were the IB parents. And what they wanted was everything. <laughs> you know, they didn't care about the fairness of it all. They didn't care about the equality of it all. They wanted advantage. And that becomes a detriment to this idea of effectiveness, too. So at a local level, we have to decide what's going to be fair, what's going to be equitable, and what's going to be effective for a teacher to be successful in this particular environment. And we can't base it all on test scores because that's a poor measure because it ignores so many factors because it's trying to be the same model for everyone across the board. It's a real paradigm shift for a lot of teachers to take on this idea of I'm not coming into a community to get them good test scores. I'm coming into a community to build a coalition with that community to decide what good schooling is, is I think a real mind bender for a lot of my young teachers who have been taught and have begun to have begun to buy into that. The teaching profession is about the output. Therefore I'm coming to a community that is, in need of my services, is in need of me getting them to this ambiguous standard that we've set um, for communities. And I wonder if you have any advice or anything that you've seen that helps teachers in particular begin to reorient themselves as coalition builders with community members rather than test service providers um, for communities. I'll say this, and it's kind of also in the typologies of effectiveness. If you come into a school as a savior, you're really overemphasizing your worth. Our students don't need to be saved. They bring an enormous amount of talent and color and energy to a classroom. They don't need someone to tell them that you can only be successful through me. So that's they have to enter in as a collaborator, as a, as a person willing to understand the give and exchange of education and how that helps you grow further than textbooks. And I would ask them to harken back to their college days. What was really learned was actually learned through conversation, was learned through the interaction of a multitude of people. Um, I would also then have them to think very intently about the purpose of education. Like really think about what is the purpose of education? When will you know that you have been educated? And it's never, at, it's never in May. I can almost tell you, it's never in May. There's no finite date that you will know that you have been educated. I can tell you this. Some of the skills that I learned in elementary school came in pretty handy in middle school. Some of the skills I learned in middle school came in fairly handy in high school. And some of the things I learned in high school really worked out when I got to college. But schools are saying they got to work out by May or June or whenever the test date is. So you, you kind of get that that's a big difference. If you understand education like planting flowers, you can't put a seed into the ground, water it a few times, and say, where's my plant? Where's my flower? The work has to take beneath, under, take beneath underground and then 
move and evolve. Education evolves within the person. So there's no finite date when it has to come out of the ground. It comes out when it's ready. Education is the same way. So as long as we're saying we have to have this measure by May, we're never really educating students. And I guarantee you, if a student got a proficient score, test them five days later, see what they would get. Once the energy and the hype of test prep wanes, if they had to take that exact same test again, see if they would get the exact same exam. Let's test that reliability of it, you know. So and there's many things flawed about these exams. So we can't base our idea of ourselves, actually. Because if you have repeated years of non-achievement, so to speak, it's going to damage your self-esteem as a teacher. And it's going to make you incapable of actually fulfilling your idea of teaching because you're just convinced you can't do it anymore. And it's going to damage your morale and you're going to start engaging possibly in some self-destructive behaviors. A lot of cynicism and burnout will ensue. And it's just not healthy for you to be there and then stand in front of 30 or 40 children and claim to teach them sincerely. So it's not mentally healthy. It's not a mentally healthy good thing to do. So To switch the conversation a little bit, but I think it really relates to the points you just made, that if teaching isn't about test-taking, and meeting this proficiency that has been set by various people that aren't actual community members or even teachers themselves, we have to begin to think about, well, what is education for? And in your other paper, Developing Scholar Identity, a case study for black males in early college high school, you wrote this, parents, teachers, administrators, and community stakeholders alike must be intentional about positive identity construction in school if the goal is to ensure black males are served in education. And my question for you in that quote is, what does it mean for a teacher to ensure positive identity construction? First and foremost, you have to believe that the student has an identity worth constructing. And it can't be yours. So you have to approach identity development as an open slate to the child and the capital that they bring to the table. And you have to believe that every student brings social capital, a network, a unique skill, a unique perspective to your classroom. It's a gift and an honor to be able to teach a student. You know, I never, I taught for 22 years. I never thought that I did something great for students. In fact, even today, I thank them for allowing me into their lives. But we construct their identity by a lot of things I have to believe and be willing to instill in them. Uh, Whiting, Gil Gil Whiting, uh, is actually the impetus by which this paper is built upon. Develop what we call a scholar identity model. Um, If you were to find that model, just on that alone, if teachers could actually think intently about that alone, the scholar identity model, that could change their paradigm of teaching. That you are finding ways to build self-efficacy within students. You're finding ways to expand their internal locus of control, to show them that they can control outcomes, that they can learn and improve and they can make a mistake. In urban schools, students believe that mistakes are fatal. They don't believe that you can make a mistake and then that's part of the scientific process. You can learn from it and there's a second chance. 
We have built education as if you don't get this, your life is ruined. And there is no such thing as a second chance. But in the real world, there's always a thing as a second chance. I can go and get another degree if I want. If I fail my driver's test, I can take it again. <laughs> you know, there's always a chance to come back. There's always a chance. So the fear of failure actually freezes our students. So we're relieving that and showing them that they have more control to actually engage them in their aspirations and then tailoring lessons to meet individual nuances of the students that I know, you know, and, and actually taking the time to get to know them beyond name. Um, that and identifying a scholar identity model is an excellent place to start. Um, and if you look at it, and I'm speaking to teachers right now, if you look at the scholar identity model, if there's a part of this that you do, then you know that it works well. And if there's any aspect on there that you have not done, sincerely, try it and see what it does. You know, and it is, was made with black males in mind, but I contend any historically marginalized student will identify with this. And I also contend that we're probably doing it for the students that we believe in. You know, so let's do it for all of our students, but let's take a chance to really know the, the student as well and to really understand the nuances that that child brings to the table. You'll be surprised, and it also bring peace to your practice. Peace to your practice. I, I feel a lot of teachers don't have a lot of peace with their practice, and I, and I have anecdotal evidence of that as well as I think if you just look quantitatively at the mass exodus of teachers not only that's going to happen probably at the end of this year after a year-long pandemic and us not adjusting our understanding of what school is in the midst of a pandemic and what students and teachers and parents and community members need from schools in the midst of a global pandemic. Um, teachers are leaving at a rapid rate of this profession. And so finding peace in your practice is something I think I'm going to hold on to for this semester. How can I help teachers find peace with their practice? Um, with that said, I would love to hear, um, we've come to the moment where we need to wrap this podcast up, and I just wanted to create space for you um, to speak to listeners of this podcast in a way that I might not be able to. All right. Um, as we talked about the pandemic, I would like to kind of give a conclusion idea or a thought piece to that. Um, I'm often in my conversations hard on teachers because I love the profession. I love what I was able to do within the profession. I love the, the colorful personalities that I've been able to meet and proud to say that they are friends of mine. I've celebrated their birthdays and my birthday with former students. I've been to their weddings. I've collaborated with them on business ideas. Um, they've inspired me and I came to work every day to impress some, some of my students. Like I literally wanted to make them think more and question more and argue more. Um, so we knew that we had to adapt the technology for at least over a decade. We've known that. We've had this idea of the flipped classroom for at least over a decade. We've learned how 21st century students learn because we're doing the same thing. When you want to know about a product, you go to YouTube. When you want to see a product review, you go to YouTube. When you want to learn about certain things, you go to YouTube. 
it's not a secret that the person who invented Khan Academy has never taught. But they were entrepreneurs. They understood innovation. So here we are. We had 2020 come, shut us down. We transitioned to online learning. But we forgot the idea of flipped classrooms. And we forgot the idea of critical media pedagogy and all of these things the students can do to create and learn within their environment and bring it back to the school site because we've been convinced that education can only take place in a school building. So what did we do? When we flipped to online learning, we took the traditional school model, which is three classes of 90-minute blocks, and we put that in Zoom. And it wore you out. <laughs> it wore students out. I know that because I had two Zoom meetings in one day and it wore me out and they were an hour each. You know, I wanted to turn my screen off. I wanted to go and grab, get a snack. I'm an adult. I've been trained in this field. So to expect a student who doesn't possess a degree in this field... <laughs> And if we understood the 13 and 14 year old developmental mind, the idea of putting them on a Zoom for 90 straight minutes is insane. You know it's insane. I know it's insane. But I also know that you have been put in this position, not of your own accord. So how do we get out of this? I would encourage you that whenever we've experienced downturns in society, that has been a time where the greatest amount of innovation has emerged. I'm a former history teacher. You innovate when you are down. You figure out how to make this thing work. You figure out ways to do things better. Uh, so now we're down for the punch. We don't know when we may come back or if it's safe to come back. And, you know, maybe we shouldn't come back the way we have. But now we have to figure out how to innovate your teaching. Innovate developing skill sets. Develop your podcast. Develop many micro lessons that teach the skills so the students can access it from their phones. They can pause it, rewind it, take a break, come back to it. Develop projects and activities that teach them while they go out and generate knowledge themselves. There's so much to be learned outside of these walls. There's so much to be learned in human interaction. They can look at buildings and start thinking about geometry and measuring things. One of the greatest classes I ever took was architecture and engineering. Uh, that's the field I initially wanted to go into, um, but I got in love with teaching and working with students. So innovate. Think about ways to innovate and make life easier on you. Um, make life better for your students. Make the education experience better for them. Learn who your students are and cater your lessons towards them. That's a measure of innovation as well. And it also keeps you excited and new and renewed all the time. Um, you should never teach the same lesson twice because the same students are not in that room. So a little bit of what your, forms your lesson has a lot to do with what you know of students. So constantly reinvent yourself. It'll keep you fresh. It'll keep you alive. It'll keep you enjoying the field. Um, yours is a great profession. It's a great thing to do, um, and you can do it if you innovate. You can do it for a long time and enjoy it.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Saturday Sips with Dr. Derek Robinson as we discussed what effective teaching is. My call to action this week is first and foremost, please like, subscribe, and follow wherever you listen to podcasts. And then when you have time, leave a review. Let me know what you like, what you don't like. It would help me out tremendously, not only in the promotion of the podcast, but also feedback is great. My second call to action, which I'm very excited about, is I want you to participate on these shows. If you want to be featured on 5-Minute Fridays, there's going to be an opportunity for listener questions as well as teacher stories. Linked in the show notes is a way to record yourself and get that recording to me. Click on that link, start asking some questions, and see if your voice shows up in the next week's podcast. Um, I'm super grateful for you. I'm hopeful for more interaction this semester. Be blessed.